Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Fab Four Free For All. And welcome to another edition of the Fab Four Free For All. I am your moderator for today, Rob Leonard. And joining me, as always, are my co-hosts, Tony Truguardo. Hi there, folks. And Mitch Axelrod. Let me take you down. <laughs> That's what we're sort of talking about today. Oh. In many ways, we uh, have a guest on the phone. He has written many Many Beatle books. Yay. He has announced his retirement more than Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and, more farewell concerts than Kiss or and, The Who. And, <laughs> he is back, like uh, Michael Corleone in Godfather Four 3. Uh, we have Bruce Spizer on the phone. He is the compiler this time of The Beatles and Sgt. Pepper, A Fan's Perspective, which just came out with the release of the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper. Bruce, welcome to the Fab Four Free For All. Yay! Glad to do it. I love taking a free fall every now and then. <laughs> and you and Tom Petty. Uh, yeah. Make sure you're wearing a helmet, that's all. <laughs> so, Bruce, what made you write this book about Sergeant Pepper after saying you were kind of retiring from writing books about the Beatles? Yeah, about a year ago, I um, sat down and I thought, next summer is the 50th anniversary of Sergeant Pepper. And I thought I just wanted to have an essay in the can, as it were. So I wrote this essay, not really knowing where or when it would be used. And um, as the year started coming to a close and we were getting near 1967, I thought, okay, you know, I love Beetle Fan Magazine, but Bill King is not going to run this essay and have all these beautiful color images I want with it. And I thought, I don't know any magazine that would give me editorial control. <laughs> and I thought maybe what I'll do is I'll just put out like a little magazine myself and i thought okay that'll be cool and then i thought you know i like my essay but wouldn't it be neat to um get an idea from you know the canadian side of things from pierce hemmingson and bill king and al sussman had written these wonderful pieces back on the 25th anniversary and i mean their recollections really haven't changed and so i thought you know we could add those and now i started picking up the page count a bunch and then i thought you know you you really need to have something on how the songs were written and recorded and stuff like that and the wonderful cover. And all of a sudden I realized, look, this is getting to be a book. And I thought, okay, what can I do to make my book different from my other books and from other books that are going to come out on Sgt. Pepper? And I thought, look, why don't I call my book The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper, and the Summer of Love? And then I thought, no, someone else is going to come up with that title. It's too generic. And what is my book? Well, it's it's talking about things from the perspective of fans, and that's when the light went off. The Beatles and Sgt. Pepper, a fans, spelled F-A-N-S apostrophe, perspective. And by the way, that is grammatically correct. <laughs> so that was the idea, and I thought, you know, well, yeah, I'm a fan, and Bill King's a fan, Al Sussman's a fan, Pierce is a fan, but why not get stuff from the everyday fans? And so I solicited that on my website. Hey, tell me about your Sergeant Pepper memories. And I start getting these great stories. The one that touched me, and it was one of the very first ones I got, was from a guy, I think, up in rural Maine. And they went ahead and got the album one weekend. And they would play it when their dad wasn't around because he didn't like rock and roll. And one day he came home early from work. And he heard When I'm 64, and he fell in love with the song and any time his son would be playing music, he would say, hey, can you put on When I'm 64 from me? 
And the story ended with the guy saying, you know, I'm almost 64 now, and when I am, I'm going to play the song and sing it with gusto, thinking of my dad. And that practically brought me to tears. And I started getting all kinds of other things. Wally Pedrozic sent a wonderful one, uh, yeah. hearing the album with his mother. Yeah. And yeah. other people, yeah. you know, the album meant so much to me because my dad went out and bought it for me. And I began to realize that this album brought generations together, unlike other Beatle albums. And, you know, and you start getting these common threads from it. And then I got this one from a guy named Barry Winslow, who was with the Royal Guardsmen of Snoopy and the Red Baron fame. And his story was great. You know, he was driving in the car and he pulls off to the side of the road hearing these new Beatles songs. And he's getting ready to record Snoopy's Christmas because you <laughs> got to do those in advance. And imagine, you know, Snoopy's Christmas compared to Sergeant Pepper. You know, <laughs> how weird is that? But that made a light go off. Musicians are big Beatle fans. Oh, God. And yeah. so I um, called up Pat Denizio of the Smithereens. I said, Pat, could you write something? You know, Pat, look, Bruce, I'm too lazy. Let's talk, take notes, and write it up for me. Okay, great. <laughs> and then I um, emailed a friend of mine who knows Peter Tork. And she um, said, look, i tell you what I'll do. I'll email Peter and see if he's agreeable to do it. And like 25 minutes later, I get an email from her. Here's what Peter wrote. Yeah. And so there it was, exactly as I put it in the book. It was something spontaneous and from the heart. He didn't think it out carefully. Right. And then, you know, my buddy Lou Simon wrote something and, you know, Lou says, you know, look, I know Billy Joel. You want me to ask Billy if he'd be interested to contribute? I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, I get a phone call a couple of weeks later because it takes a while to set things these things up from Billy Joel. And I interview Billy and from his interview and in his own words put together this incredible story from Billy that if it had been from anybody, it would have been the highlight of the book. But making it, you know, from Billy Joel, it was even that much more special. Billy's very well spoken, which is which is very oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And don't give away what he said yet, because, you know, we'll get to that later and we won't even really give it away because we want people to read it. Right. Uh, yeah. But he had a really cool story. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. and coming from Long Island also. Yeah, where we uh, from. yeah, we all are. I actually was giggling when I read his story. So and I'm sure he was giggling after he. Uh, yeah. Right. Not after he wrote it, but after he was did what he did while yeah. he was listening to it. So, I mean, it, it was just a great interview i um you know recorded it and played it back in disbelief of did he really say what i thought he said yeah he did okay great <laughs> so i have a question for you bruce and we we have the book it's, it's amazing but why is sergeant pepper well why was it and still is such a cultural and musical phenomenon because arguably as you say in the book as well you know is it their best no um arguably um, Revol Revolver, Rubber Soul could have easily, I think, in my opinion, Rubber Soul is a better album. Why didn't it change the world? Why did Sgt. Pepper change the world musically and culturally? I think the thing was that its release was viewed as a cultural event, not just a release of an album. So I, you know, had a lot of quotes from reviews of the time and, you know, like the New Yorker viewed it as a cultural event. Uh, like, you know, an opening of an opera or something. What it did was it raised rock music to an art form. But unlike many things that followed it, it wasn't art for art's sake. The key to Sgt. Pepper was it was also a great listening experience at the time. And it remains a great listening experience. 
So that, to me, is what makes it so special. It was important because it was art, but it also was a great listening experience. And can you say that about some of the so-called artsy-fartsy rock albums that came out after Sgt. Pepper? And the answer is no. Some of them sound incredibly dated. What if Sgt. Pepper came out in 1969, for argument's sake? Did the whole Summer of Love thing add to the aura of it? Uh, because, uh, again, it's a, it's a really fine album, don't get me wrong. The other thought, too, is what if the gestation period had not been as long? What if, it came what out if there had been, not that it had come out earlier, let's, let's say, for instance, there had been a stopgap thing of... Uh, a, a compilation of stuff that had been previous outtakes because the record companies got nervous and threw out something after a few months and got the Beatles to agree to do something like that. Like what Capital did with the Beach Boys. Like what Capital did with the Beach Boys. Did the wanting for, and, and adding to your comment, Mitch, was it partly the timing in the year and was it partly the, the yearning for the fact that it had been that long? I think that those were key factors in it being received the way it was at the time. You know, it was a highly anticipated release. The Beatles had never taken this long to release a new album. We had heard already Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, so we knew what they were capable of. Sure. I mean, there were hints at Revolver, certainly, but Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane were just so refreshing and different than anything else. So, you know, the hints were there, and it was this anticipation and I think one of the other things that was done so wonderfully by Al Sussman in his little short piece called The Communal Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, that's a good one. Was that, great. You know, what happened was this is pre-social media, no, you know, Internet or anything. And we're sitting there playing the album. And I knew I was not alone. I knew millions of other people in the United States and in the UK in other parts of the free world were doing the exact same thing I was doing that weekend, listening to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. We, we knew it, but there was no way to prove we were right. We just knew it. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because, uh, unfortunately, Bruce, I found it after, you know, you had wrapped up the requests for, for stuff. But I had found a, an interview that I did with Marty Balin back in the early 80s, and Marty echoed exactly the sentiment that you're saying in the book. Marty was talking about the idea that every single window on every single street in The Hate, you could hear the album blasting out. You know, I know Cantor's quoted, uh, is in, it was mentioned in the book, and, and, you know, Al talks about the airplane. But Marty had said that he had, you know, he had heard an acetate of a day in the life I guess, I don't know if it was when they were visiting uh, San Francisco or, or at another point. And it no, completely... what happened was that for some reason, one snuck out and uh, it got airplay in New York and taped and got airplay in Canada. Oh, so probably what he Coast. did, yeah, you're right. He probably heard the cassette recording of the acetate or, you know, a, yeah. a reel-to-reel recording of the acetate. But he said his mind was completely blown. And after that, it's as you said, that, that whole communal idea... It was really just truly the motivating factor into the summer of love, really just brilliant. Yeah. In the New Yorker article where they're talking to Joe O'Brien, who's with, I think, WMCA, one of the DJs. Right. And he said, you know, his son was at Yale and his son told him that uh, every student in the university had gone out and bought the album and his friends at Harvard Doesn't said the same it. thing. So the difference, too, with Sgt. Pepper was, look, when the Beatles first came out, junior high kids and you know high school kids to a certain extent but to but the college students for the most part shunned it they were into folk music and this was teeny bopper music 
But when Pepper came out, college students loved it. They were the new Beatles fans, or they had grown up, and you no longer could call it teeny bopper music. So the Beatles expanded their fan base while Life magazine had speculated that because this was so different than what they had done before, that they might lose their fan base. The opposite happened. Most of their fans stayed with them. Not all, but most stayed with them. And they gained new fans. Obviously, some fans defected to the Monkees because the Monkees in 67 were doing what the Beatles had done before. Right. So I think that was kind of the interesting thing about it. One of the things that you... uh you know, you talk about in the book, Bruce, that was sort of revelatory for me anyway, was I didn't realize, and we just brought it up, we're talking about uh, Marty Balin, but the the extent of leakage of that album, which in this day and age, okay, Nat Weiss sent a few nasty letters saying, please don't do this. But if this was was now, that would have just been just massive lawsuits and massive issues and yes. massive problems. And here, you know, this... This also may have been a contributory factor to the album being, you know, so hotly anticipated because there was that sneak preview aspect. Yeah. Yeah, but don't well, I think absolutely. You know, we had the two songs on the single. And for those who heard A Day in the Life, even though it would not have been of the greatest fidelity, it still, you could just tell it was some great. Plus, it wasn't the final version of the song. Um, the actual thing that you heard in all likelihood if you go to the Sgt. Pepper Deluxe Edition on the mono disc, they have what they call Remix 1 of Take 6. That is what you heard, only not in as good a quality. Ah. Well, I also cool. want to add to what we're talking about here. We we have Strawberry Fields Forever Penny Lane in, in February. We have Sgt. Pepper as an album coming out in June, and then there were no singles. So you had to buy the record. You couldn't um, hear on the radio unless they, you know, top 40... Um, played a, a particular hit, and plus at the same time, FM radio is starting to kick in, and, yeah. and there's a hip factor there. But I also think the third thing that really made this, and it's not even on the record, is the release of All You Need Is Love and the fact that that was seen around the world, on our yeah. world. And I really think that those three things sort of combined and made this whole album bigger than it it could have been or should have been maybe yeah you know well, so. not, not should have been well you know but Bruce- yeah i think it was i think it got what it deserved i mean you know as, as i pointed out you know it got incredible reviews in the u.s and the uk the only really bad review was in as i like to jokingly say the failing new york times <laughs> <laughs> sad yeah but he's since recanted that yeah, he did. Uh, he yes did change. No. Yeah, <laughs> sort of. He said he only heard it on one channel. He didn't know it. You know, he was given every excuse so people wouldn't boo him because it was the only negative review. You know, but uh, I do want to ask you a question though. The let's get back to the single. Um, you know, Penny Lane, Strawberry Fields. First of all, the thing I didn't realize because again we're in the states here; it's American centric. But um, first of all, I didn't realize that they wanted input, uh, and it was the first UK sleeve. Around yeah. and that was very, very interesting to me because again we're, we were so used to sleeves for every Beatle, most Beatle records. Uh, so that was that was something that I I didn't expect to read and it was really revelatory for me. But that it also had their input. But one thing I wanted to ask your opinion about was the, Rob brought up a great point about the single, no other single, no singles from the album. But yeah. while it hurt, helped a little, could it have hurt? In the long run, because it didn't give legs to the album, even though I know 158 weeks on the top 100, but did it hurt 
or help, in your opinion, having no singles? I think it hurts sales because I think if you had released a single of, you know, Lucy in the Sky and Sgt. Pepper or whatever, and that came out, let's say not contemporaneously with the album, but, you know, later on, say in September, they pulled a single from it, then some people who didn't really experience Pepper would go, boy, those are great songs. Maybe, you know, maybe I need to go out and buy this album. You know, hit singles make hit albums. It was the mantra of Capitol. <laughs> And that's why they did what they did and quite successfully. You know, obviously, the Beatles' great music was a thing to exploit it. But pre-Beatles, a teen album, if it sold 200 to 250,000, that was considered a mega success. And so, you know, the Beatles' music was so great. And Capitol's idea of, hey, let's put I Want to Hold Your Hand on Meet the Beatles. You know, Meet the Beatles sells 3.6 million copies in a couple of months. And their sales forecast was 250000 So, you know, let's give Capital credit for a lot of the good things they did. Sure. Now, Sgt. Pepper was the first album under the new contract with Capital that gave the Beatles artistic control over albums and singles. So Capital could not have altered the album. Right. If they had altered it, probably what they would have done was drop Within You, Without You, and Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, and put on Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields, and then release Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, you know, as a single or something, with Within You, Without You on the B-side or something. <laughs> that would have been kind of you know. cool, though. <laughs> That's a good yeah, point. I, I like that. I like you know, that. But let's, let's look. Let's face it. Uh, it's unfortunate in many ways that Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane aren't on the album, but, you know, you can always do it yourself. And burn a CD by placing Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane between sides one and two. I made cassettes like that when I was in college, putting the singles between sides one and two of the albums. And boy, it works really great. But even without arguably two of the best songs from the session... It's still an incredible listening Oh, absolutely. Experience. But I must make the uh, additional notice right now that, friends, if you do burn such a thing, please only use your own copy of the CD, as that will be the only legal way to make said copy. Yeah, Thank okay. you very much for this announcement. Thank you for the, <laughs> thank you for the, <laughs> the legal disclaimer. The talking, legal disclaimer talking, from the non-legal guy. Uh, yeah, talking to a lawyer and legal disclaimer. <laughs> but you know, so, you but you, oh, wait, it's oh. a good point. That's where I always would have put Strawberry Fields Forever would end at side one. Penny Lane would have started side two. So. Yeah. Yep. Oh, absolutely. The thing you talk about, uh, which I, I love that you brought this up, because most people don't consider this, Bruce. You talk about Sgt. Pepper being visually stunning before you even put the album on, yeah. which yeah. I, I love that you did that, because it gives so much credit to to the artwork, the album as a whole. Bef you know, Again, before you're even putting it on, I, I remember holding it, and I, maybe I should have wrote to you with this, I, I, hindsight, but I remember as a five-year-old getting it and, and just having my mind blown because it wasn't what I was expecting with the Beatles and looking and, and opening and putting on the mustache and popping that out. And I'm sorry I did because I ruined my original copy, but <laughs> I, I had about eight copies of it anyway. It didn't matter. But I love that point that you brought out. It was so. Yeah. I mean, for, you know, for me, it's, it was the same kind of thing where, you know, I always reflect on if the movie almost famous. Yeah. And I bring this up when I do the presentation I do and I show the clip from it and there's, that scene where he gets that valise of records and he's flipping through it. I guess I got Pepper. I had said to you 67, but I got Pepper in early 69. Yeah. And I was, I was, you know, four and a half. And it was that and meet the Beatles. And it was, it was that 
I literally got that satchel of records that the kid gets in Almost Famous. Yeah. You know, and you're, I'm flipping through the albums and it just, the, the tangibleness of, of Sgt. Pepper of the album. And, and I happened, you know, to get a copy that still had the cutouts and still had the inner sleeve. And, but no one ever brings you know, that up. I mean, no one ever says, you know what, Pepper was so beautiful and, and I didn't even hear it yet. You yeah. put it on and then say, oh, by the way, the well, cover it's, was cool. It's a, it's a cover that invites you because you have to, it, not everyone on the cover you know. Not at all. Well, and and, and, and also, the the, but, but then again, you see like, oh, there's Bob Dylan yes. and there's yeah. Laurel and Hardy and, and, and people you do know. So that's part of the, the coverage for me. I mean, personally... I didn't get the album to like 78 or 79 because I was just starting to become a Beatles fan. Right. And, and I bought the greatest hit stuff first because that's what you do when you're first starting out after everything has passed you by. So to me, getting this album, I was like, okay, I really enjoy it. And you, you mentioned Mark Lewis in the book. He did the same thing I did. We all did. And we the all did. Within without you, first time I heard it, okay, that's not really my favorite song. So scares me. I will... <laughs> Move it to Within You when I'm 64 right afterwards. Yeah. So for, yeah. for years, I didn't listen to Within You Without You. See, I connected the idea, and I think Bruce kind of alludes to this, but I, I almost connected the idea that that group on the cover is the group at the beginning of the album. That's, yes. That yeah. is the audience yeah. and is the laughter at the end of Within You Without You. So from a conceptual, you know, you talk about it as a concept album, but it's a concept album and a concept cover. Yes. You know, the, the yeah. cover is the audience. And here you are with an album where, in two songs, there's a focus on an audience. You know, and, and including the interstitial bit between the Pepper opener and, and With Little Help. Right, right. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. Bruce, you know, you... You talked about... Well, first of all, I do want to ask you, later on you'll have to give you a little Johnny River story because that's hysterical. But yeah. you know what? I brought up to these guys, I think especially Tony... You know, as much as John said, you know, it was a concept album because we said it was, I still think it's sort of a concept album because I dare you, with the possible exception of When I'm 64, to take any one of those other songs and put them on any other Beatle album going forward or ba or backwards. They just wouldn't fit. Yeah. And I mean, I, I certainly feel it. Look, it's a concept album in the same way the Who Sell Out is a concept album. Mm. The Who Sell Out's concept is you're listening to, you know, Radio London or something, and you're hearing these tunes and all, and, and you know, we've thrown in commercials and all. So it is a concept album, and I, you know, I get disagree when people say it's not. And the cover, as you rightfully point out, is part of the concept experience. But wouldn't you say that the, the concept is the fact that there's really no theme running through it. It's not like there's a story like maybe Tommy or some other albums that have come out where there's yeah. a certain theme that the the packaging and the way it's put together is the concept in many exactly. ways because everything is close together song-wise. There's a lot, not a lot of dead air on the album like previous albums and the cover and the words being included and the fact that it was a gatefold cover and it came with the, your own mustache that Mitch ruined a couple of times. <laughs> uh, um, even today. So even to me, that's the concept of, of the album, that they connected it all together. And to me, it's, I think, maybe gotten bigger from other people that it's a concept album. And then if they actually listen to it, it's not like Tommy because Tommy is a right. concept album and some of the other albums like that. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, right. it's not like Tommy or Arthur by the Kinks, right. but, you know, the concept is there's this mythical brass band called Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and they're putting on a concert and sit back and, you know, let the evening go. That sounds like how they 
proposed the movie Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> Ooh, boo. Oh, yes. No, but that's how oh. I think the, it was misinterpreted the, the a little bit. The film that nearly wrecked the careers of Peter Frampton and the Bee Gees. <laughs> right, yeah, but, really. but if you think about it, they, they sort of took that idea of a concept into making it into a movie, and then you sort of realize that you know, well, not to of, do that anymore. Yeah, not to, not do to that ever anymore. do that again. Yeah. Uh, Bruce, one yeah. of the things uh, you know, we're we're all Americans. We always like to see different things, and your books always have something that we've never seen before. And right in the beginning, there is a picture from from the the official Beatles fan club poster of uh, yeah. the four of them, an alternate take which I've never seen before. Where did this come from? And uh, I've never seen this anywhere else. And the other thing I want to say is the, the opening thing on the the front of the cover is the American version of the stereo album. And I know that's sort of important that you put that on there. By the way, that's my album from 1967. Oh, all it right. is? Okay, wow. You're, <laughs> that's cool. That's not beat that's up at great. all. Wow. That's great. But it's very important because only Capital put the stereo line across the top. The British, British didn't have that or any other didn't have yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. I had somebody criticize the cover because, you know, I used the, the ugly U.S. album with the stereo banner and the white border. And I said, that's my album from 1967. It's beautiful. Well, you know what? Why don't we, we've been it's like baby, hearing about baby pictures. <laughs> well, well, let's not go there because I have a few of me that you don't want to see. But I wanted to ask you, you know, we've been talking about a fan's perspective. Why don't we listen to you when you first heard Pepper? How did you hear about it and how did you hear it? And what was your first experience with it? Well, you know, it, basically it did get some radio airplay on AM. And, uh, you know, normally it's the type of thing where the album came out toward the end of the week. So most people, we got it over the weekend. You know, I mean, like it wasn't the type of situation where Friday I ran home from school and got the album. There were people that told me on their lunch break, they rode on their bicycle to get the album. Wow. But it was a case of, you know, the first time I played it, I think what freaked me out the most, and I'm really glad I heard the American version, was a day in the life, because when a day in the life ended, I literally felt I had heard the end of the world, and that was the effect John wanted. And I think the you know the inner groove gibberish takes away from that. Um, no offense, fellas, but I think you all got a little bit too cute on that. You know, yeah, it's cute, it's fun, but to me, it's more dramatic when you just hear that thundering E chord after that build up. Yep, and it just kind of sits there, and you just kind of. You know, that amazed me. The same thing with Abbey Road when, you know, side one ended with, you know, all of a sudden this boom, you know, where the music go. I mean, I literally turned my head left and right to see what had happened to my turntable to cause the needle to jump off. <laughs> Yet there it was, you know, and when Her Majesty came on when I wasn't expecting it. Hmm. So, you know, I love those surprises and I get that the in the inner group gibberish was a surprise, but to me the dramatic effect of that final E chord was what really blew me away most about the album uh, was that. I just kind of sat there but, in awe. But the I did not hear a day in the life in advance. Uh, if that acetate made it to New Orleans, I certainly didn't hear it on the radio. Uh, but the gibberish wasn't on the American no. issue. Right. Was there any reason right. why they took it off? I never. I think a lot of it, it wasn't an artistic decision. It was a practical decision. Capital manufactured their albums differently than in the U.K., let me talk about what they did in the UK. In the sure. UK, you would make one master. By that, I mean the tapes being played. You're at a cutting lathe, and you cut a master disc. And then from that master disc, the next thing you do is you make what's called a mother. 
And then from the mothers, you can only get so many mothers per mast or maybe a half a dozen. And from the mothers, you make what are called stampers. And you can get a bunch of those, and the stampers actually press the records. What they did in the UK was they would make one master, because, you know, you had to get everything right to get that master, because you were literally cutting it live with a lathe, you know, with a lathe. And then they would make mothers, but they would save one mother not to make stampers. And that mother would be used to go backwards and make what they called a submaster. And from those submasters, they would make more mothers, which would make more stampers. So when you made an album in the UK, you probably for several years, maybe four or five years, could get away with only making one master. Capital did not do things that way. Capital, if they were going to make a ton of albums that needed to be pressed, they would make for a Beatles run anywhere from 20 to 40 masters. And from the masters, they would make mothers. And from the mothers, make stampers. They never went backwards for sub-masters. So think about it. Capital had to cut about maybe 25 masters for Sgt. Pepper, which meant they needed to start cutting them earlier. And they began cutting them probably prior to the gibberish being sent to them. Furthermore, Harry Moss in the UK went nuts getting that whistle and that gibberish you know, that high-pitched tone and the gibberish in one time. Can you imagine trying to do it 25 times? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So Capital right. just thought, no, we're just not going to do this. But isn't, story. isn't it interesting, though? I guess it's a, and, and this is a, a totally different topic for another day, which maybe we could go to, Bruce, but isn't it interesting, Happy though? back. I love going on your show. Yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun having, it, having you here. But isn't it wild that we always talk about the British pressings being the better pressings, and it, maybe it was purely the quality of the vinyl, but it, it sounds as though, for the most part, the American runs were actually literally almost a generation closer yeah. when you really came down to brass tacks. Yeah, than, but, but anyway, very strange. Until we 
You know, one thing, Bruce, you, the fan perspectives, there, there is really some great stuff here. And one of the comments that I thought was interesting, again, we're talking from an American perspective, was the idea that, you know, you've got a band that's sort of coming back in a way from the one-two punch of, of the Butcher cover and the Jesus remark. And it, one fan in, in the book brings that up in their comment, and... It was very funny how all these years as a fan, I never, ever put it into that perspective. I mean, yes, you had Revolver in between, but, you know, yeah, you had Revolver, you had no, you know, and you had the, the tour, but after the tour and the insanity of the tour, it, it was kind of radio silence until uh, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields. So whereas, yeah, and, you know... I thought it was a great story. This the story you're referring to, I think, is one from this girl from a Beatles fan club in a small New Jersey city. And basically, you know, after the Jesus remark and the butcher cover, um, some of the members of the club were dropping out because their parents were horrified by it. And they were almost shunned at school to be Beatles fans. 
with the Beatle fan club, they were lucky. The Capitol sent them a copy of the album early. So they mm. got to hear the album early. And what she said was interesting because the Beatle fan club members were usually almost always female in the U.S. And here they were listening to this album. And then she brings it to school and they play it. And the guys are the ones who love the album all of a sudden. So Sgt. Pepper not only got to the older people, but I think it made males more Beatle fans than before. So, you know, that's something else that I hadn't really thought about until I read that fan perspective and thought, you know, I was a Beatles fan from the get-go, but I know a lot of guys in my class weren't. You know, I was one of the few guys in my class that was a Beatles fan, along with all those girls. It could be there was no love songs on that album, really, if you think about it. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah she's leaving home too. is is yes. a ballad, but it's certainly yeah. no love song. But right. One thing I, I just wanted to add before we you know we're, we're moving on topics on the reissue of the album of the fiftieth anniversary of Sgt. Pepper, the gibberish is on the American version. So for those yeah. who maybe didn't pick up the vinyl, the gibberish is there. And literally, if you have that type of turntable, which you can play forever. It's fantastic. I played it for like three minutes on my show. Uh, no. It was great. <laughs> you know, Bruce, you, you mentioned that they got cute with it, with the gibberish, and, and I agree with you. But you were at the listening party uh, in New York yeah. uh, with us at the listening event. And I, I will say, and maybe you didn't feel it, but I, I'm sure you did, when the album was over— First of all, we were all just stunned because it sounded just amazing. Yes. Um, but when the album was over, there was a dead silence in that room waiting for that gibberish. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. only because we knew it was there, but it was weird. But to your point, the, the one thing is, yes, that, that dramatic chord at the end is absolutely stunning and it takes your breath away. But hearing the gibberish, you know, again, we didn't have it on the American album, but hearing it afterwards... Almost, it's like a release, sort of like George it's wanted. It's very on, interesting at the end of uh, within, within you without, without when he has the laughter. Exactly, it's yeah. that release because I know you're so wound up, especially after the remix. I, I felt like I needed to burst. You're absolutely and right. All of a sudden, you get the the gibberish, and like, okay, that that lets me just relax a little. Yeah, you know, I, I guess what I would have done differently is I would have in, I would have included an original mix from the U.S. stereo in the set. You know, you could have put it on a Blu-ray disc because Blu-ray discs hold a bunch. Yeah, sure. And on that, I would not have had the gibberish. Okay. Oh, so interesting. On, you know, and that would have been the way I would have handled it to say, okay, this, but you know, you can still do it yourself if you can play the vinyl record or if you have the remaster from 2009, you can reburn it and just edit off that gibberish if you don't want to hear it. But, you know, to me, what I love so much about that box set was to hear the creative process. Uh, sure. You know, Strawberry Fields Forever from start to finish is great. I wish more of the songs would have taken that journey. But once again, you can do it yourself. For a day in the life, you take take one of a day in the life, take two of a day in the life, but edit off, you know, the hums there because you don't <laughs> need them there. <laughs> then you go to the mono disc and you take remix one from take six. Then you do the hums, then you do the last chord, and then you do the finish master. <laughs> wow. And my God, you got it all. <laughs> That's awesome. My goodness. Well, <laughs> now, 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 Bruce, you're thanked on the, on the reissue. What did you specifically bring to them uh, to be thanked? I got, I got two thank yous. Uh, one of them, they thanked people who brought them images that they used. And, uh, 
And my name appears before Ringo because it's alphabetical. <laughs> well, he has nothing left. It all burned in the fire. <laughs> That's right. And the uh, the other one was that in the gatefold of a deluxe edition, when you open it up, I had a thank you where I had presented a lot of conceptual ideas on the project. And nice. some of them were used. Some of them were not used. But all of them were given consideration, which... You know, when you're a consultant, that's all you can ask for is that sure. ideas be given consideration. Sure, sure. And you could push for it again in the 75th anniversary edition. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have Bruce, you on again. We, Bruce, we mentioned Within You, Without You. And one thing that is a lot of fun in the book and that Rob raised the idea to that all three of us commented about and Mark Lewis and about having taken off, you know, the needle after the first time playing it and jumping over to, to uh, when I'm 64 but I found it interesting in the book that the, the critics really called out Within You, Without You sure. as being exceptional. And yet many of the fans, including Mark, make reference to jumping over Within You, Without You. And that kind of conflict had never happened before in Beetleland, really. Yeah, and it, it is interesting because I think Billboard magazine mentioned it as one of the gems yeah. on the album. Yeah. Yet... I would say half the people that said in their comments they didn't like it when it came out yeah. still yeah. don't like it, and the other half really like it now. Yeah. Really? Tom Frangione now appreciates it, and it's one of his favorite George songs. <laughs> Mine, too. Mine, too. Yeah. I always yeah. thought it was just a little bit too long. No. Uh, but, no. You, you know, but you know where I learned I greatly appreciate the song even more now was that, that special that was on PBS uh, when the album came out a couple of months ago. Um, who was the host of that? Howard Goodall. Howard Goodall. And he went into in-depth musically what that song was about. And mm-hmm. I was really, out of all the songs he talked about, the only one maybe he got that in-depth with, with was Strawberry Fields Forever. Mm-hmm. So I, after watching that, I'm like, wow, I never realized musically it was that intense and that different. Sure. I just sure. heard a lot of sitars that you know, sort of like droned, as they sometimes yeah. do. Yeah. Well, the so, other thing that I love on it is you get take one – and it's just the instruments, the Indian instruments. Right. Yeah. And what's neat about that, though, is you hear that when the rehearsal that they have before, which quite, I mean, after I would have put before. But what's interesting about the rehearsal is you hear, you know, this guy playing the actual vocal lead yeah. on uh, an instrument. And it's kind of cool where you hear that and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, he's playing yeah. the lead line, and then when George does his vocal, he's singing over the music that had already played that lead line. Um, the percussion on it's fantastic, and with the much cleaner mix you get Gorgeous. on the remix, yeah. you know, if you play that song late at night with the lights off and close your eyes and at loud volume, man, it's incredible. Oh. I just love it. <laughs> I remember how moving that was when we did the, the mono vinyl listening party. Mm-hmm. And they played that for us on mono vinyl. And it was absolutely just, as you said, moving. And to hear George talking the musician's language with them yeah, is really fascinating, too. I was really glad they in- included that. I think Giles did a good job of balancing what to include and what not to include. Uh, you know, we fans want everything and we know we're not going to get everything. But, you know, what it is is those discs work well as a listening experience, which is hard to do, uh, you know, when you're doing outtakes and multiple outtakes. And I I think it really works well. One of the things 
in the book, you not only talk about the Beatles, but you talk about what's going on at that time in, in 1967. Yeah. And the band, out of uh, all the bands you talk about that are like right next to the Beatles on the charts and, and maybe even creatively, uh, were the Monkees. Which no one would would think of in a heartbeat, especially the people at the Rock and Roll 29 Hall. Twenty nine of, of fifty two weeks, the Monkees were at the number one slot in the United States. Yeah, twenty nine yeah, they, they, they outsold in nineteen sixty seven the Beatles and the Stones combined. Yeah, but they and granted they had more records out. <laughs> exactly. Still. I know, but you know, well, they all said that you know, Liberace outsold the Beatles in 1971. Well, okay. <laughs> Don't forget Slim Whitman. Uh, Sl- but, I meant but, Slim Whitman, not Liberace. But like even Pisces, Aquarius, Capricorn, Jones Limited is on the chart. You show it right under Magical Mystery Tour, and that came out at the same time. Uh, so the Monkees, out of all the bands of 1967... They were right next to the Beatles so often, which we which we don't even think about. If you think about no, it, no, I mean headquarters dropping the charts because it came out a week before Pepper, and then Pepper replaces it at number one. No shock there. Yeah, but it holds on to the number two spot for like eleven straight weeks behind Sergeant Pepper. Right. Wow. So. But in Canada, it, in Canada, <laughs> it actually came back around and took the number one slot away from yeah. Pepper for a week. It's amazing. Absolutely. And now the other story I've got to say. Bruce, the one story that touched me kind of on a, on a personal level and I thought was just a wonderful piece was you have a comment in there from a person named, I hope I don't butcher this poor man's name, Mikhail Goltzfarb yes. from the Soviet Union. And yeah. uh, it was very interesting for me to read because back in the late 80s, I was managing a used record store and I ended up hooking up with with a a pen pal over there and we started to trade music and here i was in a used record store where i literally had a shelf of 25 used copies of sergeant pepper and it, it was essentially as though i was sending him gold bullion yeah uh you know he he asked me if i could please put a package together for him a care package together and he sent me this wonderful russian music and i sent him you know the beatles springsteen neil young and but it was pepper he wanted copies even though you know as far as i knew their pepper was out there at that point or available on the underground from from him at that point but they wanted the original copies of pepper with all the stuff yeah and you know the the great story about this is I had finished the book on a Friday, and I'm sending it to the printer on a Monday. So Saturday, I have my graphics designer do what we call pre-press, which essentially is finalizing the book. And then, you know, the book's done. I've caught almost every typo with the exception of one or two ones that I'll mention later if I remember. But anyway, I'm done with the book. Sunday morning, I get an email, and I reprinted the email on the book, and that is the email that Mikhaila Goldsfarb sent me. And it is, wow. you know, I didn't correct his broken English. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, he spelled my name B-R-U-S-E. I just <laughs> ran it exactly the way it was. Beautiful. Because it was so wonderful. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I, I have to ask, can you please just give us your little Johnny Rivers story? Because it's, it's hysterical. It's, it's a great point. It's it a is a point. really yeah, good point. You know, and the thing, and the opening essay for the book um, was written by me. And when I was sitting down to do the essay... I wanted some sort of hook, and I was looking at what was on the charts and showing its impact, and I came across Summer Rain, and I remembered, I love the song, and it had a Sgt. Pepper reference. But the reference on the bridge the first time through is, 
you know, and the jukebox kept on playing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. <laughs> and it hit me that that was a physical impossibility <laughs> because in 1967, there were no singles from the album. And in addition, Capitol Records did not issue a compact 33 of Sgt. Pepper. So there's no way on earth that you could have heard a jukebox playing Sgt. Pepper's and Lonely Only Hearts. you, <laughs> only you would pick that up because we all listen and we sing it yeah. and we think or, of it and or, never. But it was like Clint Holmes. It was the jukebox in his mind, <laughs> like yes. the playground in his mind. Or, or actually, it's it's a metaphor for the fact that everywhere you went, you heard it. Yeah, sure. So it just it just seemed like the jukebox played it, even though that could not have happened. Well, unless you know that's where Capital got the idea eleven years later to. Uh, to put it on wow. a single, you know. Right. <laughs> hey, you know, Johnny Rivers was right. <laughs> you know, now now you can say you heard it on the jukebox. Now you can, yeah. I said the fun thing was, look, and the reason that, you know, I wanted to tell people in the beginning of the book that I wrote this essay almost a year ahead of requesting people to send things in was that when people started writing in, I began to find out my Sergeant Pepper experience wasn't unique at all. Mm, that right. essay is written, there's the word I never appears in my essay, it's we, because Sergeant Pepper was a communal experience. But I noticed that there were similarities, and one woman actually mentioned Summer Rain by Johnny Rivers, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> that is cool. <laughs> so, that is cool. So, you know, what do you think the influence now it could have on current uh, young people or even older people, the, the new remix. I mean, it's a totally different experience, at least to me. Obviously, mm -hmm. we're in a different time and uh, atmosphere and culture, Lord knows. But if someone was listening to Pepper now for the first time ever, what do you think it would do to them? Well, I think what they would not get is the being blown away by it because in 1967, it was so different. So today, you know, they maybe have heard some things that would be comparable to a certain degree. So I think they miss out on that. But I think with this new mix, uh, you know, they get the powerful bass and drum sound that they're used to hearing, and that's kind of important to young people. Yeah. They, you know, they love the bass. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, I think that helps. And also, it is an amazing variety of songs. Now, the White Album takes that to the infinite degree, but Sgt. Pepper is a wide variety of sounds and genres of music. You've got vaudeville. You've got this Indian music from George. You've got, you know, Sgt. Pepper, which, look, forget about those horns and the sound effects of the crowd. That is a great rock and roll song, stinging lead guitar by Paul, oh, obviously yeah. Jimi Hendrix influenced. A great rock and roll vocal by Paul right up there with Long Tong Sally and I'm Down. So you've got that. You've got symphonic stuff with She's Leaving Home with, you know, the strings and the harp, you know, and just uh, this incredible harpsichord, you know, all these different sounds and instruments. So you get all these different genres of music on one album. And for some crazy reason, it works really well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The Beatles take it to an extreme in the White Album with, you know, even more different genres of music. Of course, they've got 30 songs to play with rather than 13. But I, I think that would impress people because, you know, normally when you listen to albums today by a particular artist, there's a certain yes. similarity between the tracks. And, you know, and look, and the other interesting evolution about music today, music originally was a singles phenomenon. 
78s had one song on each side. When we went to the vinyl 45, singles, once again, two songs on each side. And then when albums came in, people worked albums together. And then all of a sudden with downloads, you lose the idea of an album. Right. You even lose the idea of a two-sided single. It becomes a one-song experience to where for a particular artist, you may download one song by that artist and that's all you're ever going to hear by that artist. Can you imagine with the Beatles, somebody just downloading one song? No, you can't. Right. Know? And right. You would ha they would, if it was today, they would have to make sure that the whole album was bought and not the single, which I don't know if that would be not allowed, but just thought of as a bad thing, a bad business thing. Now, the yeah. other interesting comment, and I think maybe more than one person did, but I remember one person in particular, probably two, said they were introduced to the songs from Sgt. Pepper on the Blue Hits collection. Hmm. You know, it had sure. a couple of songs from sure. Pepper. Sure. But when they went and got the album, the songs meant much more to them, and they really didn't enjoy listening to them in isolation anymore. Oh. That they understood why they needed to be part of Sgt. Pepper. I can understand that. I think I can yeah. relate to yeah. that. Yeah, sure. Uh, one thing about your book, which I really enjoyed at the end, you, you go through each song and give a, a great liner notes. But you also included the, the outside musicians' names, which for some reason wasn't included in the book that came with the deluxe edition. Was there any thought of maybe making this a separate, like you, you did back with the, uh, the first uh, Capitol albums, I should say, when you made that little book? Was there any thought of making this like a separate thing? Well, I mean, uh, obviously, I wanted to do something that was complementary to what Apple was doing. I pretty much knew what Apple was doing, although I didn't, you know, have the track listings well in advance. I knew there were going to be a lot of outtakes and things, and I had an idea of what the book would be. And, um, you know, I thought, well, I want to do something that complements what they're doing. And it was nice where I saw a couple of reviews of my book on Amazon where somebody said, you know, this is a great complimentary piece to the deluxe edition. And that's really the way I viewed it. You know, it would have been nice if Apple had said, hey, you know, why don't you send us about 30, 40, 50, 60,000 of these and we'll include it. <laughs> Imagine the shipping cost for that. Yeah. Do, you, do you at but, least get the, if you bought this on Amazon, you might also enjoy this? Because that's always good, too, at least, Bruce. Yeah, you know, and look, it is. And uh, the fun thing about it was that I knew there would be books on Pepper and I wanted to do something totally different. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I think I did. One of the other great things about the book is um, the pictures. And, yes. you know, the images throughout, of course, and stuff Brilliant. from Crawdaddy and the like. But what I really loved was I asked people, if you've got pictures of yourself with the album from 67, send them in. And I actually got about a half a dozen of those. And um, I actually got one about a few weeks ago that I wish I could have included, which was cute. The guy, um, picture of him in 67 with the fake mustache. And then 20 years later, a picture of his son with the fake mustache. Oh, that's cool. And then 30 years later, a picture of his granddaughter with the fake mustache. Oh, that's <laughs> it awesome. It was really cute. Um, and I probably should get it on my website See, we, sometime. But here's the beauty of it all. You know, they were really cute pictures. The first one I got was these three girls from Cleveland sitting on their front porch with the album cover. You can tell that the person who took the picture was not exactly an ace photographer. The camera should have been lower. <laughs> but you see more of the house. You see the house needs a paint job. This is not three kids that were living in a mansion somewhere. They had to really save their babysitting money to buy this album. Mm. you know. But they did, of course. And then um, picture of this little kid 
where he's on his bicycle with the album cover open. And he's in a, you know, the neighbor's taking a picture of all the, the family kids. And, and he has to have his Sgt. Pepper album photographed with that. Uh, you know, just really remarkable stuff when you think about it. You know, our cell phones didn't have cameras in those days. Right. Sure. Sure. So, But, you know, really, the, the point being, in those days, you had to buy film, you had to take a picture, and you had to pay to get it developed. Whereas today, you know, if an album came out, it would be nothing unusual to see people holding maybe a CD or a vinyl album. But back then, to get a picture of that, yeah. I mean, I was yeah. I was blown away that I was able to get as many as I did. That was fun. And that picture of, of Lewis and his, is a lot of fun, <laughs> yeah. too, actually. But one person who I am surprised that no one has reached out to, and I only thought of it after reading the book, but, it, okay, Bob Dylan, obviously, you know, we've heard him talk a million times, but no one has reached out to the only other living person other than Paul and Ringo who was on the album cover. Not in anything I've seen or read has anyone reached out. And who would that be, Tony? Dion DiMucci. Mm-hmm. No yeah. one has reached out to Dion to say, Dion, you're it. You know, of everyone on that cover. Well, he's a wanderer, so you can't find oh, him. You're, <laughs> um, you know, yeah. you're I, I think you could have. Uh, I think Dion... You know, and it's a great idea. And if you had told me a half a year ago, <laughs> I wish I thought of it. I only thought of it when I finished Dion. reading the book. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's someone who it would be lovely to get. Uh, and get it's a funny one. And you know, they were you always trying to get people one. And the Beach Boys were playing in New Orleans right as I'm finishing up the book. And I thought, boy, this would be great to get like a comment from, you know, Al Jardine. And I slipped a note to. Uh, somebody at the stage singing the show and they supposedly got it to Al Jardine. I don't know if they did or not, but I thought about it and I thought, you know, what would Al Jardine have said? Yeah, I remember Sergeant Pepper. It caused Brian to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> Thanks a lot, kid. <laughs> Mike Love would have claimed he wrote songs on Sergeant Pepper. Well, he, yeah, he did. Too. So, before we, Those uh, hurricane girls really knocked him out. <laughs> uh, Bruce, before we uh, wrap it up, you started writing this book and when you ended the book, what did you learn new as a writer and as a fan that maybe you didn't know before? Well, I think um, what I confirmed was that the, the stories from the fans showed that it really was this communal experience and what the album meant to people. I didn't realize that it brought generations together, and that I learned. And then, and I have to give credit to Frank Daniels, who used a pseudoname for his little piece on the individual who was the model for the Sergeant Pepper picture, uh, Lieutenant Babington. And that was Frank Daniels who put that together. And I want to give Frank credit for that. And, uh, and that was a little known fact that I was really happy to learn. And, uh, you know, whenever I do these books, Frank and I talk about things and one of us will come up with something really cool and we'll laugh and say, well, we're probably two of the 10 people in the world that will appreciate this. <laughs> but I think a lot of people appreciated the fact that the image of Sergeant Pepper on that cutout sheet was from a real person. Yeah. And I think things like that I like to do. Um, I learned some Canadian stuff from Pierce, as always. Uh, the thing from the guy in Russia was priceless. So, you know, a lot of wonderful things like that. And uh, since we're getting near a wrap, obviously, I have to tell the listeners – do go to my website. Well, we were going to ask you that. We were going to ask you that, Bruce. Yeah, we were going to ask you. Let, let's do, let's do it again. Hold, hold it, Bruce. <laughs> hey, hey, Bruce, uh, if someone wanted to contact you and maybe get the book, where would they go? They would go to Beetle.net, and they could order a special collector's edition, which comes with, of course, the book. It also has a nifty poster 
a bookmark, and it comes with an outer cardboard case, you know, kind of an O, o case. And also you get a PDF of the book that you can download. But most important of all, in honor of Brian Epstein, and I think you guys will appreciate the in-joke, it comes in a brown paper bag. (laughs) Now, if if you were to sell your original copy of Pepper, that would be a a nice little uh, little (laughs) thing on your I am not going to auction that off. I I still... And it's fun because... You know, if you look at the cover on the book, you'll see that there is a bit of a stain on the lower right portion by that doll that has a Welcome Rolling Stone good guys. So, I mean, that is the unaltered album cover that I've had for 50 years. So what did, uh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, have you obviously shown the book to Apple, right? Yeah, Apple does not endorse non-Apple products. Right. But, uh, you know, I will say that uh, I know that um, at the listening party, Jeff Jones and I brought a. It wasn't a finished copy of the book. It was right. what we call the F and Gs. It's the book printed, but not bound yet. You know, and I showed it to him, and he enjoyed flipping through it. And then, as did Guy Hayden with Universal Music Group. Yep. So you know, I think it's a case of that. You know, they obviously like to see works of this because they know it's good. Because we are promoting the Beatles, and they recognize that these are indeed. Uh, you know, labors of love. Sure. The wonderful thing about these books, though, is that the word in publishing, self-published, usually meant garbage. Right. And when I did the VJ book back, I guess, 15, 16, 17 years ago, whatever, self-publishing books had a bad rap and probably well-deserved. <laughs> and sure. uh, I wanted to do a book that had the writing quality of Mark Lewison and the visual appeal that you could do if you didn't have a publisher telling you you've got 16 pages of color that go in the middle of the book. Right. And I right. think that when I did that first book and then started doing the second book, people began to realize what you can do if you publish on your own. In some of the best Beatle books to have come out in the past 15 years or so are self-published. And I'm very proud about that legacy that I think I did trigger. Yeah. Excellent. 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 Do you have a next book on the way about the Beatles, or are you going to retire again? Yeah, I'm going to retire again, but if a project's worthy, I'll do it. I mean, look, you know, could I do a book on the White Album? Yeah. Am I going to? I don't know. I'd be more likely maybe to do a book on, say, Rubber Soul, Yesterday and Today, and Revolver. Maybe something like that, just covering, you know, that time frame, because it was such a magical time, you know, leading up to Pepper. But I'm I'm not sure if I will ever do another book on the Beatles, uh, simply because, uh, you know, asking me right now is not a good time because I'm literally (laughs) feeling like 10 or 11 hours a day in my law practice trying to get caught up. Wow. Well, Well, we we appreciate you joining us today. Bruce Spizer has been our guest. He is the author of the new book about Sgt. Pepper called The Beatles and Sgt. Pepper. And the other books, too. And a fan's perspective. And plus there's, like, what, eight or other books? A plethora. A plethora of books. (laughs) Of great books. A plethora of eight other books, yes. And and (laughs) And, uh, his website again is? the website. What's your website again? And uh, available in PDFs now and... um, uh, also, uh, the, that newfangled thing called ebooks, I believe, right? Absolutely. So. Well, I'm, yeah, we're just doing the PDFs, and I may convert some of them over to Amazon. Uh, but right now, the only ones available on PDF are the VJ book, which goes for at least 300 in the secondary market, and the two capital books. And even if you've got the print editions, it is worth getting the digital books because they are re- revised and expanded editions. 
with all sorts of new cool information in all three of those books. So, you know, I highly recommend that if you bought the print edition, you really should break down and get the digital. If you've never bought an ebook before, this would be a good place to start. It was like if you'd never bought a CD before, when the Beatles catalog came out, <laughs> that was the time to get a CD player. Well, so, uh, hold know, out, you, do it now. You mentioned that. That was the first CD I got with Sgt. Pepper. And that made me get a CD player because go. I got it before I had a CD player. <laughs> the, and and the, I'm like, well, I got to get a CD player now. Well, that so. brings us perfectly full circle. <laughs> it does, but I must I must end this by saying that the CD that I got first that made me buy a CD player was She's So Unusual by Cindy Lauper. So oh. on that note, I, I, I can't help it. That's the wow. truth. Well, you're so, so unusual. <laughs> oh, well, you know, now that is very true. I can't deny that. So Okay. That, thank you for joining us. I, am your, I was your moderator today. Rob Leonard with us is I'm Mitch Axelrod and Tony Chiguardo. And thank you, Bruce Spicer. And we'll see thank you, you. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Fab Four Free For All was edited and produced by Tony Chiguardo at Word of Mouth Studios in Westbury, New York. The opening and closing theme is My Dolly by the band The Badge, featuring longtime listener Jeff Slate, available on its debut album, Digital Retro, and recent Best Of compilation, as well as from the Fab Four Free For All website. Thanks for listening to Fab Four Free For All.